Um, before I start the sermon, uh, I want to address something that's happening in front of us in our culture that does have some implications into our text this morning, and that is the situation that's going on currently in Israel. Uh, I really believe that the church has to, uh, is obligated to respond in at least three ways to that event, that horrific event. Uh, the first one is to provide aid for those that are in need, and I'm happy to see that the church is in action in this and that there are Christians all over the world that are doing all they can to help respond to this. The second thing I think we need to do is we as the church have an obligation in a world that's increasingly becoming morally fogged to bring moral clarity. And I think we have a responsibility to call out evil when we see it. And sometimes in our culture, things come in that require us to study and and look deeply and wrestle with the scriptures and come up with a response. But then there are some things that are just black and white and as plain as day, just evil and wrong. And in those things, I think the church has a voice that has to be heard, that we are called to live in this society as salt and light and to speak and call out the evil that is there. And what Hamas did in Israel is such an event. And any attempts to call it other than evil would not only be foolish, but would be a moral compromise. As Christians in our current world, we need to lead in speaking with moral clarity in a world that is foggy when it comes to morals. When foreign and domestic terrorism occurs, when mass shootings happen, when racially motivated hate crimes take place, when abuse happens either inside the church or outside the church, or any other blatant act of evil, the church needs to be morally clear and call it out regardless of who did it. Lastly, we are called to pray. That's probably the most important thing we can do. And in this regard, we're called to pray for healing for Israel and pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We're also to pray that many Jewish people would come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're going to talk about that in our text today. We're also called to pray that the Lord would change and break and soften the hearts of Hamas, and that many of them would come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, for the gospel is our only hope in this broken world. So let's do that now as the Church of Jesus Christ. Let's go before him and pray. Father in heaven, we stand before you in this moment and we think of this horrible atrocity that has taken place in Israel. We ask that you and your grace and your greatness would be active in that place. We pray for healing. We pray for peace. We pray that every rule, uh, world ruler and world leader would be acting not on their own understanding, but that you would be moving in the midst of their hearts and their minds. God, we pray that many who don't know you, whether Jew or Gentile, would come to know you. We pray that you would move powerfully by the power of your Holy Spirit and draw the hearts of people over there closer to you. And God, we ask for 
us that you'd give us grace and wisdom and strength to pray. That we would be a praying church in this regard. That we would respond the way you want us to respond. And so God, give us your Holy Spirit to carry out your calling, the calling that you gave to us as your church. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So here you sit. Are you comfortable? Are you all there? Do you have something to drink? Do you, how many of you have something to drink? If you have something to drink, hold it up. You have your coffee, your tea, your water. There you go. You're comfortable. You're sitting there. You're probably saying that you're sitting still. There's not much movement. You're relaxed. You may feel as if you're sitting still right now, but that is an illusion of miraculous proportion. Currently, as you sit with your drink, the earth is spinning on its axis at a speed of 1,000 miles per hour. Currently, as you sit, the earth is in the process of taking that celestial 360 that it does every 24 hours. While you're sitting there relaxing with your drink, you are also hurling through space at an average velocity of 67,000 miles per hour. Not only is that faster than a speeding bullet, it's 87 times faster than the speed of sound. So even in this space where you feel like you're not doing much, at the end of the day, you will have traveled 1.6 million miles. And to top that all off, the Milky Way galaxy, our galaxy, is spinning currently like a pinwheel at the rate of 483,000 miles per hour. And there you sit with your drink. The fact that you're sitting there while all that's going on shows how amazing God is. That's God. That's the majesty, power, control, sovereignty of Almighty God. And not only do we see God in creation and in nature and doing things like this, we see him active in the hearts of human lives, just as powerful, just as sovereign, just as incredible. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Romans chapter 11. As we continue our series the book of Romans, we spent the last two weeks in Romans 11 and we're bringing it to conclusion today, this chapter. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Romans is in the New Testament. If you go Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, then you'll get Romans. If you hit 1st or 2nd Corinthians, you've gone too far. If you're using the Bibles here in the worship center, I'll be on page 919. We are going to see some big questions in this Bible text this morning. We are going to have a couple theology lessons in this Bible text this morning. Do you know it's okay to ask big questions as a Christian? Sometimes people grew up in a church setting where they weren't allowed to ask questions, but it's okay to ask big questions. In fact, the Apostle Paul anticipates big questions And he doesn't hide or shy away from them. He actually pulls them out and makes the conversation interesting. We saw when we started chapter 11, the very first verse, if you look at Romans chapter 11, verse 1, 
Paul is anticipating a question, and he says, I asked then, did God reject his people, talking about the people of Israel, and he says, by no means. And then we talked about how in the rest of chapter 11, he has three kind of proofs that he uses to answer that question that God has not rejected the people of Israel that he established a covenant with in the Old Testament. First, we saw that God, that Paul answered that question, did God reject Israel by saying no, because there are some Jewish people that are alive in Christ. They've given their lives to Christ. Paul was one of them. And they're living out the gospel, even though they have a Jewish heritage. The second answer that Paul brings is, did God reject the Jewish people? No, because this rejection, so-called, that you see where people have turned away is a temporary one, and God will bring them back. Today, we're going to look at the final thing that Paul says. Did God reject the people of Israel? No, because God has a merciful and wonderful gift coming to those who have ears to hear. Many of the Jewish people will come back and follow Jesus Christ. So let's dive in and look at some of these big questions this morning. Let's look at our first verse, Romans 11, verse 25. Paul writes this, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles have come in. This ties a little bit into what we saw last week in the texts above. There's this summary of what God has been doing when it comes to the hearts of the Jewish people and Gentiles. And we saw last week that Israel rejected God. When Jesus came to earth, they rejected Jesus as Messiah. If you remember, we said there's Orthodox Jewish people who do not believe Jesus as Messiah. And then there's what was called, what's called Messianic Jewish people that believe Jesus is Messiah. And we see there's some Jewish people who rejected Jesus. Paul goes on to say that happened so that the gospel then can go to the non-Jewish people. And part of God's plan was that the non-Jewish people would hear this gospel, be radically transformed, and as we talked about last week, we live gospel-flourishing lives where you would see Jesus in these people. And that would cause a jealousy amongst the Jewish people to say, I want that. And then Israel would want to return and come to faith in Jesus Christ. So this was kind of what's known as the gospel boomerang effect. Well, Paul goes on to say now in verse 25 that he kind of adds a 1.5 into this list. And he says, as many of the people of Israel rejected Jesus, they rejected God's plan of Messiah, a temporary hardening of their heart took place. There was a hardening that happened in the hearts of the people of Israel so that God's plan to go towards the Gentiles could be accomplished. Israel rejected God, and so this partial temporary hardening of heart came upon them until the perfect number of Gentiles to be reached was fulfilled. Now, what is that number? That number resides in the heart and mind of God. We don't know that. 
Many say that this hardening of Israel's heart actually started years ago, and I tend to believe that. We totally see it happening today, where more often than not, there are many more Gentile people coming to faith in Jesus Christ than Jewish people. And Paul says that will continue until the time is right, until the right number of Gentiles according to God's sovereign purpose has been accomplished. Then the temporary hardening will end, and then God has a merciful gift for the Jewish people. And then he goes on to say something unbelievable. Look at verses 26 to 27. He says, In this way, all Israel will be saved. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So Israel is going to experience this partial, this temporary hardening of heart until the appointed number of Gentiles are saved. And then it says all Israel will be saved. How could that be? All, as in all, Israel is going to be saved? This requires good Bible study. This requires us as God's people to dig into God's word and to think and to study and to reason. What does this mean? I want to look at three questions surrounding this phrase, all of Israel will be saved. The first question we have to look at is, who is the Israel in this passage? Who is Paul talking about when he says, all of Israel will be saved? Now we're going to have to sidebar this and go into our first theology lesson for this morning. It's actually a review, because we dove into this when we looked at Romans chapter 9 and earlier. We looked at this thing called the doctrine of election. What is the doctrine of election? When you look in the Bible, you'll see different spots You'll see the word, the elect. What is that referring to? The elect, election is God's divine choice to grant eternal life to undeserving sinners based solely in his love and glory for them, not in their goodness that comes from their own strength. It's God's divine choice of who gets saved. Now, there's two views in evangelical Christianity that look at election. We talked about that earlier. One is that God looked in his foreknowledge and saw who would be the people who would repent and believe and turn to him, and then he elected those knowing in his foreknowledge that they would come to faith in Christ. Then there's the other view that says it was strictly by God's divine sovereign choice. Our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church, allows for both views because there's enough biblical support for both. This was obviously something that God wanted our church to hold in tension, to study and look at, but never try to solve. If you ask where your pastor lands, I land on the sovereign choice side simply because I see a compelling evidence of those scriptures but I hold it loosely. I hold it in tension. 
So we have to understand election because of this. Going back to our text. Who is Israel here? Some believe what Paul is talking about is those people in the Jewish faith who are elect. Those who God knew are going to come either by sovereign choice or knowing his foreknowledge that are going to come to faith in Christ. That when it says all there, it's referring to all the elect. That's a plausible idea, but many theologians and pastors, myself included, disagree with that thought. And the reason is in verse 25 and throughout chapters 9 to 11, Paul, when he talks about Israel, is clearly talking about ethnic Israel. The people of, of Israel, the Jewish people. He's clearly talking about that. So for him to go and all of a sudden switch in verse 26 and talk about the elect of Israel or spiritual Israel and then flip out of that and go back and talk about ethnic Israel just doesn't make a lot of sense. So that leaves us in a predicament, right? So what does all Israel be saved mean? Who is Paul referring to here? Jewish literature uses the phrase all much different than the way we do today in United States English 2023. Jewish literature uses all many times to refer to a large number. We see this in other places in the Bible. It said, all the Jewish people went out to see John the Baptist. Well, obviously not every single Jewish people that was roaming the earth at that time went to see John the Baptist. It was referring to a large number. And so what Paul is saying here is a very large number of Jewish people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. So that takes us to our next question. When will this happen? When will this large number of Jewish people come to faith? It's interesting in verses 26 and 27 that Paul quotes an Old Testament passage, Isaiah 59, 20 and 21, to support his viewpoint of what he's teaching here. Paul ties this large number of Jewish people coming to faith in Christ to the end times, to end times events. Now, we always have to be cautious when we consider future events because we won't know for sure if that's what's going on until they actually happen. But looking at this verse that Paul brings out from Isaiah, the deliverer, Christ, will come from Zion. He will turn the godlessness away from Jacob. This is clearly talking about end-time events taking place. So I believe what this is saying is that Jewish people are going to come to faith. There's going to be, and this is going to happen not just at the end of the age, but we've seen it already. Some Jewish people are coming to faith as time goes on. However, also, as we get closer to the end of this age where Jesus Christ will return a second time, we will see many Jewish people in greater numbers turning to follow Jesus as Messiah. They'll be coming into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So when will it happen? This passage displays both over time and then in the end times there will be this great awakening, if you will, amongst the Jewish people. Now, maybe, just maybe, it's possible that what's happening in Israel today could be part of this. God turning the hearts of people close to him. We can bet on the fact that God is moving. 
and that God is stirring and that God is active and that he has everything under his control no matter how crazy it looks. God is bringing about his plan for this to happen. So the third question, how will Israel be saved? Some think they might be automatically just brought in by the, by the fact that they're Jewish people and that God made covenant with them in the Old Testament, but that is not true. The Jewish people will be saved like every single human being must be saved. The only way you're saved is by placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. The only way you're saved is by turning. You must repent. You turn from your life and you turn to God. You turn from your sins and you turn to God. Then you must trust, placing your faith and belief in Jesus Christ that what he did for you on the cross is what saves you, not your own efforts to be a good person. And then you must follow Where you say, Jesus, you are the Lord of my life. You sit on the throne of my heart and I will follow you all my days. There's a turn, a trust, and a follow. That's how they'll be saved. So in summary, one commentator writes this about these verses. So when the gospel has penetrated the ends of the earth, the Gentile, non-Jewish world, and the fullness of Gentiles has come into the family of God through faith in Christ, then God's mysterious saving grace, in God's mysterious saving grace, he will lift the veil on his ancient people and multitudes of them will trust Jesus as their savior sometime around the return of Christ. That's what Paul's getting at in this verse. That's what he's expressing. Now Paul turns his conversation to the Gentiles in verses 28 to 32. Let's take a look. He says, as far as the gospel is concerned, You Gentiles, they, the Jewish people, are enemies, meaning hardened for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on the count of the patriarchs. God did not forget his covenant he made in the Old Testament times. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, the hardening, then the gospel went to the Gentiles, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Paul here is summarizing chapters 9 through 10. The Jewish people who were in relationship with God with the Old Testament, when Jesus came on scene, rejected Jesus. They experienced this temporary partial hardening. So the gospel goes to the Gentiles. The Gentiles became followers of Jesus Christ, lived gospel-flourishing lives. They loved Jesus. They followed Jesus. That created a gospel jealousy amongst the Jewish people. And at the right time, the Jewish people will be softened, and many will come to Jesus. Then he finishes with this interesting phrase in verse 32. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. The everyone there refers to every ethnicity, Jew and Gentile, all humanity have fallen short of God's glory. All humanity are bound in disobedience and they stand in need of a savior. 
All humanity has fallen short of the glory of God and have sinned and therefore have no, cannot be in relationship with God who is holy and just. And so all humanity stands in need of a Savior. And God from all time saw that situation. And he saw that they needed God. And so he sent God, his son, Jesus Christ, to earth. And Jesus did what we cannot do in our own human strength. He lived out a perfect life. He was sinless. Not one sin. He lived to the glory of God to the fullest extent. And then, seeing our state, knowing our state, where we could never do that, he who was sinless went to the cross and took our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And Jesus Christ went to the cross. And on the cross, all of humanity's sin was placed upon Jesus. And at the cross, God the Father took the penalty of sin that was rightly ours as human beings and deflected that off of us and put it onto his son. And God the Father poured out his wrath upon his son and Jesus absorbed the wrath of Father God in our place. And now, as we stand in need of a righteousness that we cannot produce in our own strength, we cannot do enough good things to be righteous before God, to receive enough merit before a holy God. We cannot make that happen. We stand in need of a perfect righteousness that we can't obtain in our own strength. So we have Jesus, our Savior, who because of the cross now not only cleanses us and forgives us of our sin. But when we turn and trust and follow, he places his perfect righteousness over us so that we can stand now in the righteousness of Jesus before God, holy and blameless because we stand not in our righteousness or our strength, but we stand in the righteousness of God's Son, Jesus Christ. This is what it means to be in Christ. This is the gospel. Look at verse 29. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Gifts here are the promises and blessings of God that were unique that God gave to Israel. A large number of Jewish people will be saved. God hasn't rejected his people. They'll be saved because God does not revoke his saving promises. This is one of the most comforting passages in the Bible. You can hold God to his word. God will not revoke on his promises. That's what this verse is saying. He will not go back on what he promised. Now, if that wasn't enough in deep theology, we're going to go even deeper. Because I want us to be a thinking church. I want us to be a wise church. And some people look at verse 29 and they see, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. And some ask, so does that mean you can't lose your salvation? There's a popular phrase in evangelical Christianity that, frankly, I just can't stand. And it comes to me as a pastor often, and, and it, it really just needs to be 
done away with. Rid it from your mind and your heart. The phrase is this. People will come to me and say, Pastor, do you believe once you're saved, you're always saved? Just, that's a terrible sentence. It's a terrible phrase. Flush it down the toilet. Get rid of it. Because the trouble with that phrase is, what do you mean by that? If you mean, if I come and I pray a prayer, even if I'm honest in this prayer, and then I live however I want apart from God, I go and I blow everything off, I live whatever I want, but I prayed that prayer, does that mean once I'm saved, I'm always saved? No. Then I don't think that's true. Now, if you've, what by, if what by you mean by that phrase is that you came before God and you were honest and you turned and you trusted and you followed, but you still stumble and fall, but then you repent and you fall again and you repent and your heart is directed towards living to the glory of God and your heart is directed towards Jesus Christ is your Savior and Lord. And though you don't walk that out perfectly in this life and you stumble and you repent, but your heart is directed towards that, will you lose your salvation when you stumble? I say no. No. And the reason I believe that is partly because what we saw in Romans chapter 8. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among all many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, elect, he also called. Those he called, he also justified, meaning made righteous. Those he justified, he also glorified. This is called this golden chain of salvation. That once God began, calls you, He elected you. You will be glorified with him. God can be trusted with his work and his promises. So a better phrase versus, do you believe once saved, always saved, is do you believe in eternal security? And as your pastor, I do. I believe a heart that's turned towards God and truly seeking after him, even though they stumble, will not lose their salvation. And I'm convinced on this through scriptural account. However, there is another view that is accepted in biblical Christianity. And that is the view that a person can lose their salvation. Because in the Bible, we see both promises and we see warnings in terms of our salvation. We see promises about our salvation and we see warnings about our salvation and they're both in the pages of Scripture. They both are true. And some pastors, theologians, and Christian traditions emphasize the promise part. They emphasize verses like this, that when God elected someone, he will glorify them. When he predestined someone, he will glorify them. Romans 8, 29-30. They hang on verses like John 10, 28, where Jesus says, those who have been put in my hand, I will not lose them. They will not be plucked out of my hand and taken away. They camp on promises that are like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, that God who began a work will be faithful to complete it to the end. They emphasize the promise part. 
Some Christian traditions, theologians, pastors, Christians, emphasize the warnings part because they're there as well. Mark 24.10 says, In the end times, many will turn away from God. When Jesus is preaching a message in Luke chapter 8.13, he talks about the four different soils, meaning the conditions of the heart that the gospel falls on. And one of the conditions, it says, falls on rocky soil where it came to life, but then it died and withered away. John 15 talks about branches not bearing fruit get cut off. Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6, talk about those who tasted, who have come into the fold of Christianity, must be careful not to turn back from him. Warnings and promises we see both in the Bible. And in various times, in various ways, throughout the church, what has happened is the church has taken their side and then thrown theological rocks against the other. We don't want to do that. That's spiritually immature. Rather than choosing a side and throwing rocks, a mature Christian understanding must hold together both the promises and the warnings in the Bible since they both are in Scripture. And both help edify Christians and both are true. The truth is a promise and a warning do not have to contradict each other. A promise and a warning can coexist. They're there for us. God put them in place for us, his children. We see this in another level of life. When a parent teaches their child to ride a two-wheel bike, we see promises and warnings put together. That parent tells that child, hey, you have to be careful when you approach a street because if you go out in the street and don't look, you could get hit by a car, and that's a really bad thing. Warning. Then that same parent has that child on a bike, takes the training wheels off, and is chasing that child behind the bike, holding the seat, and then eventually letting go of the seat. And what's that parent saying that whole time? I got you. It's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. It's going to be okay. Promise. Warning and promise, true, all together at once. God is our perfect Father. Gave us warnings in the Word of God, gave us promises in the Word of God, and we hold them together. So yes, I believe in eternal security, that a true follower of Jesus can't lose their salvation, but a true follower of Jesus will heed the warnings and persevere and pursue Jesus until the end, until they die or he returns. God knows what he's doing. He is God. He knows all things. He controls all things. That's why Paul, after sharing all this theology, comes to this amazing place of worship. Paul explains how God moves and brings people close to him who are Jewish, how God moves and brings people close to him who are not Jewish. And then after he spills all this out, he like interrupts his train of thought and he breaks out into worship. He breaks out into song. All great theology should cause us to worship. All great theology should create an awe of God in our hearts. 
So Paul gets to this place where he comes to the end of all questions. Look at verses 33 to 36. After all that, he gets to this spot and he says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Look at that first word in verse 33. Oh, all great theology should lead us to oh. Oh my, God is great. Oh my, God is good. Oh my, God is so far beyond human existence and human experience. He's truly in a class by himself. God does not need a counselor, nor can he ever be repaid. He is the source of all things, the ultimate glory in all things, and he will forever be glorified and worshipped in all things. I think when we get to heaven and we gaze upon the glory of God, I think we're going to say, you know, God, when I was on earth, I knew you were amazing, but I had no idea you were this amazing. I knew you were majestic. I had no idea you were this majestic. I knew that you were glorified and you were all-powerful. I had no idea what I was talking. And if I knew then on earth what is reality now, it would change everything. So I want you to grab two things from this. First, I want, you to, I want to encourage you to live in the awe of who God is. Live in the awe of who God is. Never, ever lose your awe of God. If you feel like you're losing your awe of God, talk to one of your pastors here. We will put you on an awe recovery plan. We have resources and things that will help you. Paul David Tripp wrote an amazing book called Awe, and he talks about in this book, he says, Christians who are struggling with sin, they don't have a sin problem, they have an awe problem. They don't understand who God is. We can't lose our awe of God, we have to stoke it. We have to stoke our hearts into the awe of God. So keep your awe of God. But I want to invite you to do something else today. Typically at the end of sermons, we invite you to do something. Today, I want you to rest in something. If you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to rest in the fact that in your imperfection, God holds you. In your spiritual failures, God holds you. God keeps you. I was reading a devotion on Tuesday that was amazing by a guy named Robert Plummer. He was talking about Romans 4, and maybe you remember Romans 4. We talked about Abraham, 
and how God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. And this guy, Robert Palmer, writes writes this. Paul presents Abraham as a model of the kind of faith we should have in Jesus Christ. Paul leaves no room for flaws in Abraham's faith. He says Abraham did not weaken in his faith when God said, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and he was as good as dead, over a hundred years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, it says in Romans chapter 4. If you've been around Christianity a while and know something of the Bible, you might scratch your head and say, but didn't Abraham fail to believe God's promise and instead take Sarah's handmaid Hagar as a concubine fathering Ishmael through her? Didn't Abraham even laugh in unbelief when God said he would be the father of many nations and he'd bear a son in his old age? So what we find in Romans 4 about Abraham, is that just a spin job on Abraham's life? No. Instead, we have Abraham's life from God's final and gracious perspective. Abraham was a flawed man, a sinner, as Paul understood himself and all human beings to be. He wrote, all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All people stumble in many ways, it says in James chapter 3. But as we look at a person's whole life, do they keep turning away from sin? Do they keep looking to God as their only source of righteousness? Do they live a continual life of repentance and faith? Over a Christian's lifetime, God progressively shapes them into the image of his son Jesus. And we can easily lose sight of God's long-range plan when we get mired in our daily failures. We must remember the Lord's gracious perspective on his servants' lives, that God accepts us fully because of Jesus' righteousness. And then he says this, are you currently drowning in the remembrance of your own failures? I ask you, Crossview Church, are you currently now drowning in the remembrance of your own spiritual failures? If so, you need to remember God's plan and God's perspective on your life is so much grander, so much greater than your spiritual failures, than my spiritual failures. Glory be to God. He looks into eternity past and he sees us And his saving love is set on us there before he even created the world. And then he looks into eternity future where we will be glorified singing before the throne of God, free from all sin in his presence, clothed in robes, washed in the blood of the Lamb. And even now, in the meantime, he leads you gently as a shepherd, not driving you, not scolding you. And one day, when Jesus says to us, well done, good and faithful servant, the nagging memory of all of our failures will dissipate 
like the morning fog. And we will sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob before the throne of God because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. God's plan and perspective on your life is so much grander. Let's take that thought into communion this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the glorious gift of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the glorious gift of grace and mercy. We thank you that as we sang earlier, that though our sins are many, your mercy is more. What an amazing blessing and gift you've given us in your son, Jesus. And as we remember him and what he did for us at the cross, by your spirit, awaken in us deeper levels of knowledge and revelation that we may know him better. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we move into a time of communion, just by way of instruction at Crossview Church, you do not need to be a member of Crossview Church to take communion with us, but you do need to be a member of the body of Christ, as the scriptures say. So if you've given your life to Jesus Christ and you're following him, by all means, join us by taking communion with us. Parents, we see you as the spiritual heads of your households, and so if your children have made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ and are walking with him, you feel it's appropriate, they can join us in communion as well. My last instruction is as you take these elements, hold them and not take them until instructed so that we can take them together as one corporate body. In response to God's word today, let communion be a time where we take our spiritual failures and we throw them in the hands of our Savior where we receive his mercy and his forgiveness through repentance and confession. As we remember what Jesus did for us on the cross and who he is, the Bible instructs us to examine our hearts before we take communion. And so I want to give you a chance to do that now. We're going to take a time of silence, and I encourage you to confess any sin that might be in your hearts now to God. Allow the Lord to search your heart and examine us fully before we take communion together as one corporate body. So let's go before the Lord in silence and give him time to do that. Jesus, we thank you that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and all unrighteousness. We thank you for that. And in your name we pray, amen. If you've confessed your sin to God, 
May you receive his forgiveness and mercy. Let's look at this verse from Psalm 32. And let's say this together as one corporate body. Then I acknowledge my sin to you, and you did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What a precious gift and promise from God. With that, let's take communion together. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which has been given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we thank you for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ that washes us whiter than snow. That we stand now in a righteousness not of our own, but in righteousness of him who paid it all for us. Help us to walk fully in that, we ask. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you now to please stand. And just as Paul ended Romans chapter 11 with a doxology, which means praise or glory to God, we thought it would be appropriate to end our service today singing a doxology that the church has sang throughout the ages that reminds us of who he is and gives him all the glory for what he has done. So let's sing this doxology together as we close. Praise God.